when you're a child, before you can read, the lyrics to church songs can sometimes sound confusing. At least they did to me, and no one likes to be trite or common, but I must confess I was. I fell victim, like so many others, to some of these church lyric misunderstandings. For example, the Easter song, Low in the grave he lay, Jesus, my Savior, I heard as low in the gravy lay Jesus, my Savior. And I pictured Jesus sunken down in some kind of gravy bath and assumed that gravy must be some sort of theological metaphor that I would understand someday. And then there's the more famous ones to Silent Night, Round Yon Virgin, Mother and Child. I heard as Round John Virgin, Mother and Child. And so in other words, for me, there were three people in the scene, Round John, the mother and the child. Now I knew that Joseph was supposed to be the man in the scene, and I didn't know who John was, but since he was round and then Santa was round and it was a Christmas song, I thought maybe that had something to do with it. But I never really knew why round John was in that scene. And then there was for me this one. Go tell it on the mountains, over the hills and everywhere. And when I was a child, I could not, for the life of me, imagine the wicked thing the mountain did. Because for me, to tell it on was to tattle on. And as the youngest of three boys, I did that often. I, 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 I'm sure I, I thought my only power was verbal. And so I would say, I'm going to tell on you. What a brat. So here we are, fresh off Christmas. And I'm going to stick with my interpretation of that song, and I'm going to tell this morning what the mountain did, and actually by that I really mean what I'm going to do is tell on us, tattle on you and me, lay blame, point a finger on us as human beings. Because apart from doing that, like round John, it will never really make sense to us why Jesus is really in the scene, or why a dirty, smelly manger can be so glorious. Last week, the call went out for radical change, and one such change for many of us might be a radical change in how we view ourselves and all other human beings. For us to truly see the glory of Christ. For us to truly see our radical need for Him. We must have a radical view of ourselves. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning as we return to Isaiah 40. Someone impersonating me stood here last week and said, The last week was the final week in Isaiah 40, but you should have known better than that. And so here we are once again. I'm going to ask you, if you have your Bibles with you, to take them out and turn the Old Testament to the book of Isaiah. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you. 
But when you found your place in Isaiah 40, let's stand so that we might hear read together the word of a living God. Isaiah chapter 40, this morning, beginning in verse 3, this is the word of the Lord. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Sure, the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. It is your word which makes it holy and divine and totally other than we are. And so we pray now, Spirit of God, that you would attend us as we look at your word together. Open our minds to understand, our eyes to see your truth, our wills and our hearts to determine, to align ourselves with the truth that you show us this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much. You may be seated. And let's begin this morning by looking at the God-inspired structure of the verses that we've read. It's very clear that verses 3 through 5 and then verses 6 through 8 form two distinct sections that work together and that must be kept together. Both sections begin with a voice. Verse 3, a voice cries. Verse 6, a voice says cry. Both of these sections end with the word of God. Verse 5, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And verse 8, the word of God will stand forever. These two sections are intentionally set in contrast with each other. I don't know if you can bear one more homespun story or not. <laughs> but I'm going to chance it and this is the last one of the morning so there is hope. But it's what came to my mind as I was meditating on these verses. Over 30 years ago, I was going to seminary full-time with a family. And I could choose to either feed my family or get a haircut. I chose a haircut. Let them eat cake. Okay, I'm lying. I chose to feed my family. But that began a 30-year adventure of cutting my own hair. That explains a lot too, doesn't it? But now I have a problem that I didn't have 30 years ago. 
as you can see, my hair is now white. And the mirror that I stand in front of to cut my hair reflects the door behind me that is also white. So it's white hair against a white door. And so without any contrast, I cannot see what to cut. I can't distinguish what's hair and what's door. And so now I have to hang a dark towel over the door as a backdrop. And only against that dark backdrop can I see what needs to be cut. Crazy as that sounds, that's what verses 6 through 8 provide for us. They provide the dark background, and without them, we cannot see just how glorious the glory of the Lord is who is presented so gloriously in verses 3 through 5. And is that not the goal? To see the glory of the Lord? Look in verse 5. The glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it. So, verses 3 through 5 They cry out, shout out, announce God in his glory. By contrast, so that we might really see the full glory of God, verses 6 through 8, cry out, shout out, announce humans in our state of unglory. Verses 3 through 5, shout out the glorious power of an eternal God to level mountains and to Fill up valleys. By contrast, verses 6 through 8 announce how weak humans are. Verses 3 through 5 shout out the infinite, eternal God who steps into time and space. By contrast, verses 6 through 8 cry out how finite, time-bound, and temporary we are. So what verses 6 through 8 truly do is they they tell it on us. They tattle on us. They point the finger at how hopeless we really are. No one likes to be told on. It's usually very difficult for us to hear the truth about ourselves. Human nature that all of us share, we prefer to be coddled, don't we? We need to be highly esteemed. We need to feel as if we are great, of great worth and innate goodness and infinite potential. You can be anything you want to be. Our culture plays into our need to be made much of. And so our culture emphasizes self-esteem above all else. Our culture insists on believing that human beings are basically good at heart and that if we just dig deep enough, we'll find pure gold. It insists that we are each of such great importance. But that runs counter to the truth of these verses. But that shouldn't surprise us, should it? Because Satan, our enemy, really does have a pretty tight grip on our culture right now and we know this whatever God ordains what Satan opposes whatever God ordains Satan opposes God ordains that you and I should know the truth about ourselves 
Therefore, Satan attempts to cover up that truth, to exchange it for a lie. His goal is that human beings, you and I included, esteem ourselves too much so that we esteem God too little, or really in our culture, that we esteem God not at all. And so almost every microphone in our culture and every screen in our culture proclaims, cries out the innate goodness of human beings and every choice that we choose to make. But I'll tell you this, there is no hope for anyone in believing that lie. And that's why God, the God who loves us, tells us the truth. And here in these verses, God puts great emphasis on this message. In verse 6, one voice commands, cry. And the other verse, voice asks, what shall I cry? So it's cry, cry. In other words, don't miss this message. So whatever you tell yourself about yourself, whatever you tell others about yourself, that story, that narrative has to come in line with the you described in these verses. Let's look at that description. Look again in verse 6. All flesh is like grass. Not some flesh or most flesh. Some people or most people know. All flesh, all people. No one, no human being is excluded from this message. Verse 6 tells us that we are like grass. And verse 7 tells us that grass withers. To wither is simply to be dried up. Dried up. It's the same word that the prophet Ezekiel uses to describe those bones, those dusty, dry bones that God showed him scattered all over that valley. God says to Ezekiel, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up and our hope is lost and we are indeed cut off. We wither. This is all of humanity. And apart from the work of God, we will not achieve greatness no matter how much we lie to ourselves. We are all only headed toward dust. God said to Adam, right after he sinned for the first time, that he was taken from the ground, that he would return to the ground, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Not only do we wither, but verse 7 tells us that like the flower, we fade as well. And fade is just another word for wither with the nuance added of crumbling and decaying. And so we picture the flower that was beautiful, the petals turning brown and falling off. Job uses this word when he says, Man who is born of woman is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. And like the mountain, falls and crumbles away. We can't escape this reality. Even in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 4 says, Our outer 
self is wasting away. So what's the message here? What's the truth that must be announced to all people? We are finite. We are temporary. We are powerless. We are perishing. We are insignificant in our humanity, though we were not created to be this way. If Adam and Eve had not sinned, if they had only ever eaten from that beautiful tree of life, they would have been confirmed in their image of God, holiness, and righteousness, and they would have lived forever. But they didn't do that. They sinned. And their sin brought about a new reality for them and for every human being that would come after them. Every part of our being is tainted by sin. The theological term we use for this is total depravity, which means that our thinking, our willing, our doing, even our feeling, our speaking are all impacted by and influenced by sin. I like to think of it as pervasive depravity. That sin permeates all of our being, every part of us. Now that's a radical view. Especially in a culture that won't accept a low view of human beings. In fact, R.C. Sproul actually uses the word radical. He writes, I like to replace the term total depravity with my favorite designation, which is radical corruption. Ironically, the word radical has its roots in the Latin word for root, and it can be translated core. The term radical has to do with something that permeates to the core of a thing. It's not something that's tangential or superficial, lying on the surface. The effects of the fall extend or penetrate to the core of our being. All of us. Now, part of the deception of the enemy is to get us to misunderstand what is meant by this term, total depravity, in order that we might reject it. Because we believe it means to be utterly rotten, to be the worst that you can be. And yet, you and I look around us, and we see people. We see good people. We see people who do lots and lots of good things. They're actually kind. They're actually loving, even though they're not believers in Christ. And so we therefore conclude this total depravity thing, it's nothing but propaganda foisted upon us by black-garbed, grim-faced, mean-spirited, harsh, unhappy, law-laden, Puritans and perpetuated by those cold-hearted, frozen, chosen Presbyterians. It only takes reading the Puritans, like the warm-hearted, Christ-loving Samuel Rutherford, to dispel that myth each week now. For over a year, you've found in your bulletin a prayer written by a Puritan, 
and you've experienced and read for yourself there the heat of their passion for Christ and for the gospel. And yet, guess what? Those Puritans believed in total depravity. I believe in total depravity. And yet, I have asked you hundreds of times in our worship service through these many years this one question. And you know what the question is. Is that good news? Because I love Christ. I love the gospel. It's good news. But without the bad news, without telling it on ourselves, without tattling, without pointing the finger, then the good news of the gospel isn't good news, and it isn't glorious. It's just plain old news. Jesus came, and not of particular interest. But why did he come? Because we're totally depraved and desperately in need of him. Why is he so glorious? Because one like he is came to people like you and I are. Total depravity is not to be rejected. It's to be rightly understood. William Shedd was an influential 19th century professor, systematic theologian, famous for his dogmatic theology that he wrote. And and this is what he says about total depravity. That it is the entire absence of holiness, not the highest intensity of sin. I want to repeat that. Total depravity is the entire absence of holiness, not the highest intensity of sin. Scripture describes it like this. Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Romans 3, 10 through 12, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, no, not even one. Total depravity. Let me give you an example of how seemingly good people can be depraved. Psalm 19 says the heavens, the heavens declare the glory of God. Romans 1 says that God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Depravity causes people and even sometimes you and me To enjoy the spectacular beauty of creation. To study it. To celebrate it. Without giving glory to God as the one who created it. That's depraved. Creation exists to glorify God. But we glorify creation. That's depraved. Romans 11 says, For from him and through him... And to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. All things, all things in our lives are to be done for the glory of God. But our sin renders us unable to do that. Because even when and even if you you and I are doing much good, much good for so many people. 
I think there's probably not one of us who doesn't retain a little hope that we will retain just a little glory for ourselves, a little credit for all the good things we have done. See, our, our depravity robs us of our ability to live our lives totally and completely for the glory of God. Self always wiggles in. We just can't help it. It does not mean that we are utterly wicked, bad as we can possibly be people. But it does require that we tell it on ourselves, that we point the finger at our own lives, because here's the best part. Are you ready for the best part of this? Here's the best part. The finger that points to us, that finger begins to move. It isn't always pointed at us in accusation. Look in verses 9 and 10 and watch the finger move. Lift up your voice with strength. Say, behold your God. Now the finger is pointed somewhere else. Behold the Lord. God comes with might. Do you see where the finger goes? From here to here. And here's the hope for withering, fading, totally depraved humanity. The John who was the voice calling out in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord. He pointed to Jesus when Jesus walked by and said what? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See where the finger points to the fullness of the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we follow the finger that tells on us, that points to our depravity, and then we follow it away from ourselves as it fixes our gaze on Christ. Listen to Jesus' words to dried up people. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Is that good news? Christ is the living water, O oh, you dried, withered grass and fading flower. In Christ, we who are cracked and crumbling are restored and refreshed and we come alive and we become vibrant Again, here's the rest of the story of 2 Corinthians 4. So do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed, rewatered day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal, but only in Christ. So tell it on yourself. Tell the radical truth about yourself to yourself. Only then will you truly see the glory of Christ. Only then will you know why he is on the scene, that one like him came for one like you. 
like me. That is amazing. And that is glorious. Tell it on yourself. Tell the radical truth about yourself to yourself so that it leads you not just once, but every day, every day, day by day to Christ for refreshment, for rehydration that he will bring to your soul. No dry, no dust, no fading, no crumbling in Christ. It's just well-tended, well-watered souls. Behold, how glorious is our Savior, and we need him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just ask that your truth would supersede everything else that's purported to be truth in our hearts, in our world. It's a strong and powerful message around us every day, wherever we look, of the goodness of man, the secular humanism that permeates our entire society with the attempt to get us to believe the lie about ourselves. Lord, dispel the lie. Your good news is only good news because of how bad we are. Father, not to leave us in despair, but to drive us to you when we see ourselves, when we see our great need, then we run to you. And there's no better place for us to be, Lord, day by day, moment by moment, than in your refreshing, restoring, renewing, watering presence. Lead us there, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.